Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, always with Michael McKee. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Well, let's bring in Torsten Slack now, Chief uh, Global Economist for the Deutsche Bank Securities Unit. Jim Bullard said he sees this as a liquidity issue. It's not a question of a flattening yield curve signaling anything about the direction of the global economy. Yeah, I think that liquidity issue is a diplomatic version of saying that the rest of the world really matters for U.S. rates both in the front end and in the long end. And I think that's showing up not only as the business cycle abroad being a problem, it's not only economic, the problems that we have where it's uncertain how long time it will take before we'll get back on track in Europe and for that matter in several emerging markets. But it's also now this added political dimension this week that has been pushing U.S. yields down and therefore created this significant hunt for yield into U.S. fixed income. uh, I put it to somebody today, uh, when you get this kind of uncertainty and you start running scared, you hide under the bed and... U.S. Treasuries are the bad. <laughs> that's that's a good picture. I mean, I think that the problem is for U.S. rates investors, either if you're a foreigner or if you are domestically based, that you look at U.S. rates and uh, you normally say this should be driven by fundamentals. And as Bullard also said and recognized completely together with Yellen and everyone else and the FOMC, the U.S. is close to full capacity. Think about it. If we since 2009 had been saying, okay, where do you think 10-year rates will be in six, seven years? Nobody would have guessed that they would be so much lower than what they were even at the time. It's just a very spectacular period where we've been through a set of shocks, most importantly, shocks from abroad and the desynchronization of the global business cycle that has been a very, very important driver of why U.S. rates are perceived as safe haven. Tom, like, a headline. Yeah, uh, we got to interrupt. Y- well, <clears throat> you know, it's, it, it just feeds into the whole thing, the question, the uncertainty, put it that way. Mike, uh, Michael Gove was running for uh, the he- to be the head of the conservative party yeah. in England and uh, would likely become prime minister if he is successful, has been out arguing for his campaign. And he has just said that he does not expect an Article 50 trigger this year, Article 50, the official formal announcement that Britain would be withdrawing yeah. from the EU. So, Well, you know. and I would, I would also notice the other headline buried in the mix. Mr. Gove, we are not going to have a second Scottish independence referendum. I would suggest to Mr. Gove that that's not up to him. Uh, I'm going to let you say it, not me. Uh, you know, if the Scots want to hold a referendum, they will hold a referendum. The, 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 I mean, you could read too much into it. So I will just say one more thing, and then I will stop, because it could mean that he's not going to trigger our Article 50 at all. That This is just a, the, the whole thing is a red herring, and the Scots don't need to have another referendum. That's the kind of uncertainty, Torsten, that we're seeing in the world today. Yeah, and a, and a trigger in Article 50, in some sense, you could say, well, maybe uncertainty will hang over markets for the rest of this year. But at the same time... Uh, all these speculations about uh, when will they do it, will they do it, will they do it at all, the petition not to leave, I mean, so have a second referendum. It's just incredibly difficult for markets to assess and get your head around, right. how do I quantify these well, risks? Come on, you guys are living this. Your beautiful offices are on the wall in London. I don't want you to speak for David Folkerts Landau. I certainly don't want you to speak for John Cryan. But Mervyn King... Olivier Blanchard basically say, well, everybody calm down. We'll move on this to some form of normality. And we had somebody on the other day that said the one reset is currency. Are we going to move on to a normality? 
Well, we're waiting for the wolf to come, if you will, for several years now, and the wolf basically hasn't arrived. If anything, it's just gotten worse on a number of fronts. So if normality means the expectation, which many investors I talk to have, that rates are about to move higher, uh, it is definitely going to take quite some time before we get there. We need a lot more adjustment on the currency side. We need a lot more adjustment also on the domestic side. And that's something that's just not very uh, helpful if you have the view that rates are going to go up. So that speaks to the uncertainty hanging around for a while and global growth being weak for an extended period still. What is your GDP number for the U.S. right now? Are we at, are we at escape velocity, 2.8%, 3% GDP? So the Atlanta Fed estimate, the latest one has GDP growth at 2.6%. So in that sense, uh, it's pretty clear from that uh, that in Q2, we are not in a recession. Uh, the big uncertainty here is what would this mean, Brexit, for U.S. GDP in the coming quarters? Uh, the best guess is uh, we believe that uh, it will have a negative impact on UK GDP of 1%, basically 0.4 in the euro area, and basically half of that in the US. But that's relatively small impact on the US. So as such, you also look at where 10-year rates are today and ask, well, Brexit, if the consensus says this is only a few tenths on GDP, then that shouldn't have that significant impact on US rates, which tells you that it's not domestic US economic conditions that are driving US rates. It is, again, either safe, to haven, safe haven yeah. flows or the overarching uncertainty coming from the rest of the world. What does it do to the markets when you have, uh, you know, the, the the central banks of the world so heavily involved, either as the buyer of last resort or as the people telling other people what to buy? The, you know, the chief fixed income strategist of the world is Mark Carney right now. Well, this is a really important question. I mean, think about it. Most portfolio managers, both in equities and in fixed income, they have an MBA where they were brought up doing bottom-up analysis. They sit and say, what is the cash flow of this company? What is management? Do they have products in the pipeline? And therefore, asset prices should, per that approach, be driven by the bottom-up view. And at the moment, asset prices are simply not driven by the bottom-up analysis. It's driven much more by liquidity, and which is a whole different story. It's a whole different way of looking at assets, which basically means that macro has become such a dominant theme rather than the CFA bottom-up analysis of whether companies are selling more or less products. And that's a very, very different way of doing asset pricing. It's much more the portfolio model in terms of what liquidity compared to the bottom-up analysis of well, looking at individual products. There you go, Tom. You wasted your time getting uh, a CFA. You, you should have been slam? a central banker instead. You know. <laughs> if, you had, if you'd spent your career on the board of governors, you'd be a lot better off. I'd be older. Torsten, uh, I want to get to the yields in a moment, but let's first talk about the state of the American consumer. We saw spending, I mean, income and spending this week. People do math. They come up with great numbers for disposable income growth. And yet everywhere I see for sale signs, sale signs, arguing about sluggish consumers. I don't get it. How's the consumer? So the consumer is actually okay. If you think about it from a Fed perspective, what drives consumption? The first driver of consumption is if you have a job, and jobs are actually okay. So in that sense, we have support from there. The next driver is your wealth. Wealth is also very high with the stock market wealth being so up so much and also home prices being up. So that's also supporting consumption. The next issue is oil prices have fallen a lot, so that should also be supporting consumption. And finally, interest rates are still very low, so it's easy to borrow. So all four variables, if you will, on the right-hand side as, uh, that are the predictors of consumer spending are actually saying that consumption should be higher than where it is today. So that's why it's been a little bit of a puzzle why 
like consumption has been weak for uh, the latter part of 2015, but we have seen in the last few months a nice move up. So the U.S. consumer is actually doing good. There are some very important differences if you look at consumer confidence in particular. Consumer confidence for the last six months has actually been moving down for people that are 55 years and older, but it's actually been moving up for the millennials, people that are less than 35. So there's Mm -hmm. a gap opening up in terms of who is more excited from a consumption perspective. But generally speaking, U.S. consumption has been doing well. And an important point to your question, Tom, is that think about what consumption is. Consumption is just not your basket only when you go down and do your grocery shopping. Two-thirds of your consumer spending is services. And of the total basket of consumption, 40% is housing. And services means housing, transportation, education, healthcare, recreation. Those services components, again, two-thirds of your consumer spending, are relatively unimpacted by the rest of the world. Mike, Mike, this is important. That's brilliant, Torsten. I would suggest that people don't look at their rent or their mortgage as consumption. It's like John Tucker, I mean, help me here. It's like the retire it's like the required check every month. First thing I pay every yeah. month. <laughs> and there your consumption is probably up. <laughs> yeah, true. We we tend not to think of that and we also don't tend to think we have designed a tax code that hides a lot of consumption as well. You get Fair. you get very cheap Healthcare, because you have an insurance plan that pays for it. Your employer is actually paying for that insurance in most mm-hmm. cases, or at least a large portion of it. But it comes, you don't see it because it doesn't come out of your paycheck. It comes beforehand. So whatever benefits you get, that is consumption as well, which is interesting because our inflation statistics, Torsten, have been distorted by the way this is all uh, handled because we don't we get these revisions once they figure out what the health care costs change are and and, and it, it, it kind of makes it hard to forecast where inflation is. And health care costs are your copay. It's uh, everything that are costs associated with medical services. And that has been now been moving somewhat higher and the level of growth in inflation in that has definitely been well above the Fed's target of 2% for quite an extended period. So the bottom line is Don't confuse your grocery shopping uh, where you see prices go down. And as Tom just said, you see for sale in many stores, uh, including here in Manhattan. But you should also look at what other parts of your consumer spending are actually doing. And there you are seeing more inflation in rents, also in, again, services, transportation, more broadly. Mike, two guarantees this morning. One, people are shocked by low rates. And two, nobody believes what Torsten just said. People look at rent and they go, (laughs) "That's true." it's not consumption. Well, they look at at prices and they say, it's not true that inflation is low because whatever it is I bought this week is higher. Well, in some sense, it's very uh, unusual consumption. It's not the kind of consumption that creates a lot of jobs in stores and in factories, etc. So that's why it's, it's, it, is, it is from a statistical perspective perceived as consumer spending, but you're right, it's not uh, something you think of normally as well, you demand more of this product and then prices go up. The real issue, and uh, Jim Buller was talking about this, he's, he's incorporated into his model, is not what consumers are doing. They're spending. It's the guys in the C-suite, the businessmen who aren't spending. And productivity is low and business investment is low. Is there something you can do about that? No, that that's very important, Mike. Remember, from a GDP perspective, seventy percent of GDP is consumer spending. So so far so good. But roughly around fifteen percent is business fixed investment or capex. And you're right on the capex side, which is much more cyclical and therefore much more important from a business cycle perspective. Capex has unfortunately been very very weak because the C-suite has exactly as you say, Mike, not been unleashing the significant amount of cash that they have. They have been using it for purposes, as we talked about earlier, that are not very very helpful for creating jobs. Mike, help me here. With the yield structure I see, not that Tim Cook is short of cash, but he can go out today and buy what? 
General Motors or anything he wants. Yes. General Electric and get what? A negative yield if he goes over to Switzerland? They'll pay Tim Cook to take their money? Yeah, I suspect he doesn't have a whole lot of Apple stash in Switzerland. But um, that's the question is what's going to incent people to invest to get a longer term payoff? But right now it's all about getting your capital return I mean, I, rather than return on capital. I mean, I understand that Mr. Bullard has a public duty to toe the line, but uh, this is truly extraordinary. Torsten Slack, thank you so much. Thanks for Generous having me. Generous of you this morning. Well, uh, this has been a global, uh, the Brexit vote has been a global issue. We're seeing the play out, play, seeing that play out in yields around the world, including in emerging markets. Amar Bishad is managing director and head of BlackRock's Emerging Markets crossover team. He joins us now. And uh, Amar, how much of a, an effect is it going to have on emerging markets? Obviously, it removes a level of concern that interest rates in the U.S. are going to go up too much. But does it really add much of a tailwind to the markets you follow? end of the day, it's a shock, right? It's a, it's a, it's a shock both uh, strategically, but also a shock in terms of growth. Global growth is, is going to have to be uh, downward shifted, downward adjusted as a result of a very large economy going through a shock like, like Britain. Having said that, against it, you have a policy reaction by major central bankers who are extremely aggressively and increasingly so, as we saw yesterday with leaks, reports that potentially the ECB is going to relax its capital keys, which is a technical terms for even more, uh, more more, more, more accommodation. So you put this together, it's a, it's a moderate shock on growth with a very aggressive policy accommodation and lower rates, and that's usually a good place for emerging markets. We're not getting the tail risk of very, very sharp slowdown in growth, but we're getting significant support from policymakers. So EM assets should get a bit here. But what's the growth outlook? What's the growth outlook for emerging markets? Because emerging markets, the story has always been a growth story. Absolutely, and that's at the end of the day. I mean, that's the 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 fly anointment. EM growth is having absolutely no pulse here. It's, it continues to be very disappointing. Most of the major economies are in EM are either very weak, or some of them are even in recession. Um, and and at the end of the day, it's tough to be strategically excited about emerging markets without actually seeing growth resuming. Against it, however, valuations are attractive. A lot of the prices in the emerging markets are priced in this 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 negative growth uh, outlook, and and you're getting right now this policy reaction, this policy response. Central bankers yeah. are supporting us; they're helping us, and that that's a good <clears> thing. So I don't want to say it's a tactical trade for now, but it's it's, right. it's it's something that we do in the short term right now. I mean, we've we followed from a distance dollar peso, Mexican peso, ever weaker, getting out through 19 peso per dollar. Again, and coming back a little bit in the last few days, do central banks and ministers of emerging markets have any power now, or do they have any control of their destiny, or are they strictly at the will of the European banking system, Michael Gove, Boris Johnson, and Janet Yellen? 
<laughs> Absolutely. Michael Gove is probably more important than Augustine Carsons in Mexico or, or Donald Trump for that matter. Uh, but I wouldn't take it down to that extreme, right? Central bankers still matter, especially central bankers with credibility. And what the Mexicans did last night, yesterday, is, 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 is very impressive. In the face of policy accommodation elsewhere in the world, they decided to hike interest rates. This is their second hike in three months. Uh, three months. Rates are now 100 basis points higher than they were three months ago in Mexico. And the reason they're doing it, even though potentially, sort of, in Mexico itself does not necessarily deserve higher interest rates, but the reason they're doing it is because they want to support the currency. Because the currency at 19 is introducing inflationary shocks, it's enforcing financial instability. So they've decided that financial stability is more important than growth for them. And that's a policy choice that I, is, is, is to be commended. I mean, in, in the long term, financial stability, strength of, of, of currency is an important uh, factor for, for, for mature emerging markets. We've been talking a lot about Brexit and the impact that it is having on emerging markets uh, and it's having on markets around the world. The story earlier this year was not Brexit, but it was China and China's slowdown and the impact that has, which seems to be more direct, Amr, than what's going on in Great Britain. Absolutely. At the end of the day, um, it's, it's China that matters much, much more for us. And if you look at what's happening in China in the last three months, there are really um, three things that have shifted the story and reduced the tear risk or reduced the uncertainty. Right? One, um, they've gone through a very aggressive stimulus in, in the second quarter, early in the second quarter. Now, admittedly, um, they're doubling down on bad policies, but nonetheless, stimulus helps in the short term, which brings me to the second thing. The economy is stabilizing. Um, stabilizing at the mediocre level, but no longer contracting, no longer decelerating very sharply. And the third thing that, that is happening also is that they seem to have controlled their foreign exchange regime. The currency, while continues to weaken, and it's continuing to weaken, it's no longer triggering the kind of capital outflows that scared us in in February. So you have, um, so you have stronger growth with policy support and a stable currency with no capital outflows. A lot of the tail risk that worried us is gone, and and that's a, that's that's a very positive, or at least in absence of a negative for emerging markets. Can you predict forward mm-hmm. what will be the institutional response of emerging markets to the 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 wonder of what's going on in the G three or G four world? Will they use the IM and not the World Bank, but will they use the IMF as a conduit to scream? Will they use the UN? How do they? protest the behavior of developed markets? That's, that's, a, that's a great question. At the end of the day, Tom, uh, it, sort of, globalization starts at home. And the first thing that we need to ask ourselves is, what is the reaction function of these countries domestically? What are they doing? Are they following with, um, I hate to say this, the irresponsibility of, of developed market policymakers? Or, or, or do they shore up their, their, their policies at home? And the good news so far is that within emerging markets itself, in home, locally, the news is actually, in terms of policy response, it's not that bad, right? I mean, look at what's happening in Argentina. Uh, they've, they've, they've completely rejected their responsibility, and they're moving towards a much more, policy, uh, much more responsible set of policies. Arguably, the same thing is happening in, in Brazil. Um, uh, same thing is happening in Indonesia. 
So at home, I think the policy reaction function in many of these countries is proving to be much more pleasant than I would have thought, given the shocks, than I would have thought a year ago or two years ago. Externally, though, um, clearly the IMF is going to be the place where they need to go to if, 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 if ever mm-hmm. support is needed. And the funding is available at this stage for them from the IMF if they need to. Just, Mike, I, I find it fascinating how Eastern Europe as an example, responds to what you and I have observed in the last 15 days. I'm curious about Brazil uh, going forward because (laughs) it would be a big story at any time, but in a month or so, we're going to see the Olympics there. (laughs) They're going to get a lot of publicity. What is happening with Brazil? We've had the change in administration, but has there been a change in investor psychology? Yeah, you're to see a troughing. You're definitely starting to see a troughing of of negative expectations. All indicators we look at at this point are no longer turning south anymore, especially at the confidence indicators, consumer, household, uh, uh, enterprise sector. We're starting to see also the economy stabilizing. Again, still in recession, but it's no longer contracting anymore. And that's all because of of the politics. The politics has shifted. Mm -hmm. The problem is that it's not over yet. We still have uh, there's this big impeachment trial coming up in August that we're all going to be watching very carefully. Yeah. There's also the ability of, of the new president to be able to deliver what he promised. But as of now, I mean, this is a sea change in terms of the politics, and it's triggering with it or unleashing with it a stabilization of economics. And if the politics improves, the economics will improve in Brazil. And, and that's a big story for 2017. What yield can I pick up in a quality emerging market? How many beeps over 1.42? Eight, 9%. <laughs> I mean, listen, if you don't want to take FX risk, right, if you yeah. want to buy something with no, just, just credit risk and the high quality in sovereign yeah. space, you're picking up 280, 300, and depending on the country, some countries are slightly more than that, so 3%. If you're willing to be gutsier and take some foreign exchange risk and take local market rates, you can pick up much more. Brazil today is at 14 and a quarter percent, the policy rate. So, that's so, the- uh, so, so Brazil's trading 12%. 1,200 basis points over full faith and credit U.S. Absolutely. But again, to do that, you need to be able to, willing to take a Brazil rei risk as well, which is, which is uh, uh, yeah. an uncertain currency at best. Tell me about commodities and the linkage into commodity EM right now. We've been so distracted. We barely paid attention to oil, essentially a rock here. I'm looking for my copper quote, folks. I haven't looked at copper in ages. Can't find it right now. But tell me about metals in commodities. We keep on going back to the same story, which is the absence of negatives has been a huge support for emerging market foreign assets. What a sea change between February and today, right? Oil was 26, it's 50 right now. Uh, underneath it, by the way, look at soy and wheat and all these things that, that emerging markets um, uh, trade. And, and that's a very powerful support. Emerging markets broadly, now listen, there's a lot of manufacturers in EM, especially in Asia, but the emerging markets that we tend to, 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 to the higher yielding countries, tend to be commodity countries. Right? I mean, so the Brazils and the South Africa's and the Indonesia's of the world. And those are countries that are benefiting from, from these levels of, of commodities, partly because of supply. Mm-hmm reductions, partly because demand is proving to be much stronger, and partly because the dollar is weaker. The big dollar is weaker, and that's a support well, for... that's right where I wanted to go to end this interview. I remember said, I look at what has not occurred over the last week and a half, and it's stronger U.S. dollar. I mean, it's remarkable how DXY is in a zone, in a range. 
when you sift BlackRock's abilities into your EM purview, what will the dollar do? Medium term, as in measured by 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 long number of months, you cannot not be. You have to be bullish on the dollar. Right, that big dollar is 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 has all the support behind it. Uh, a more advanced central banker in terms of of normalization, a stronger economy, uh, a more balanced balance of payments. You cannot be bearish. You have to be bullish on the dollar. Short term, however, I think there's uh, multiple reasons for why the dollar is, 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 is likely to remain ra- range-bound, maybe with a, with a downward trend, not least of which because the Fed now is decisively more, right. decisively more, more dovish. So short term, probably uh, weaker or range-bound to weaker. Medium term, you have to believe that the dollar is going to get stronger. Amir Brissett, thank you so much. He is with BlackRock, Managing Director for Emerging Markets. There's a few walls of worry out there. Uh, Anthony Dwyer loves walls of worry. They allow him to be comfortable in equities. Many others aren't. Tony Dwyer of Canaccord Genuity, good morning. Good morning, Tom. How are you today? I think I'm good. Have you had to awesome. adjust your call after the festivities of the last nine or so days? No, I haven't. Actually, I've, I would. it's actually the response to the Brexit has actually given me more confidence in our call for next uh, for 2340 next year for the S&P 500. So I'm I'm in the camp that we go up 15 to 20 percent because what you knew right after Brexit was that there was a risk of economic dislocation in Europe. I get that you had two 90 percent downside days, and for the listeners, what that means is 90 percent of the volume on the New York Stock Exchange is in down stocks. So you had two really bad days. Historically, when you have shock days like that. You have a good market response either two weeks or three months later. So that's on its own. Separate that. So what happened after that was you had two 90% upside volume days. That is extraordinarily rare. It's very, it's, it's a lot easier to tank the market than to spike the market. So what happened is you have two, these two days of 90% upside volume. Historically, when that happens, the market is up every single time three, six, and 12 months later, and, and over the course of the next year, it's up by over 20%, actually 29% uh, is the median. So what we know mm-hmm. is with Brexit, the Fed's not going to raise rates now, at least until the end of the year at best. You have the 10-year note yield coming down to now a 142, which is very, very stimulative to lending activity. You've got um, consumer uh, the consumer spending number beat expectation and was revised higher for April. Right. So it's, I think it's a, it's a pretty okay. interesting environment. But here's the money question. And, Anthony, you've got enough grizzle around you that you can answer this. How many camp tuitions are you doing this summer? I are cannot you... believe you called me old on the radio. Did you? Um, <laughs> the camps are over. The kids are working. The you kids know, get are to working. The salt mines. Get to the salt mines. <laughs> well, it's about I time. Two, they have to. Are they, right? are they getting the $15 an hour minimum wage? <laughs> yeah, they are, thank God. Great. Your tax dollars at work, folks, a direct conduit to the Dwyer household. Tony, the money question for everybody with their 201k, the four people that went short the sterling and and beat George Soros at it. The money question is can corporate behavior and corporate performance de-link from our greater macroeconomics? What's your view of history on that? 
The only thing that matters to corporate spending at this point, in my opinion, and, and what the cycle has shown, is the ability of companies to go to the market and access debt. In other words, issue debt. So um, that's why lower rates are so stimulative when you're outside of a recession, because companies can go to the credit markets and borrow a ton of money for mergers and acquisitions, for buying back stock, and importantly, for capital spending. You know, just as an example, look at Microsoft made a, a kind of a pretty big acquisition in LinkedIn. They're financing it through the debt market. You can't do that if you can't go to the debt market. So it's that kind of mentality that helps the equity market when you do have a drop in yields. And then, again, it comes down to, for companies, are you in a recession? Now, companies are slow and they're worried about Europe. I've not heard anybody say that, wow, business is seriously deteriorating in the last two months. So I believe that we're still at least two years from a recession, which means that you always want to buy weaknesses just when, and I think we got that when earlier this week. Well, the when is earlier this week. I mean, Dow 17,900. Tony, I'm going to suggest a 143 tenure extrapolates Dow 19,000. Can you start framing out one or two years of extrapolative ex- excellence by corporations? Or is there just so much uncertainty? You're like, well, stay in stocks because I got no place else to go. I think it's a combination of the two, Tom. Uh, you know, let, let's again think back to the last time that it looked like Europe was going to fall apart. It looked like Asia was seriously slowing down in a real estate mess and lending mess. And you had very, very slow growth in the U.S. The 10-year note yield was back to a 146, and the yield curve was even on the, on the three-month and, and five-year yield curve. It was even flatter than it is now. That was the beginning of a more robust economic growth period also associated with higher rates and also associated with a greater than 30% gain in the S&P. So the thing that we screw up in, in conveying to the public, people like me come on the radio, tell people what they do, is we don't fall back on the data. And the data is very compelling at this point, and it's counterintuitive. <clears throat> What does the data say about use of cash? My answer is every CFO this weekend is going to take a call with their principals and say, we have to take advantage of this yield structure. That's almost a corporate duty. It's absolutely you. It's almost irresponsible not to. Just like, you know, the first thought around the trading desk at Canaccord Genuity outside of how can we help our clients was how, how should I refinance my mortgage? So it's almost irresponsible in a lower rate environment. If you're we're at full employment, we have low interest rates, and we have increasing incomes. That's not the recipe for disaster. That's the recipe for spending, and I think that's really what companies and and households are going to be doing. Now remember that there's been a negative period for earnings outside of recession because you had an absolute collapse of energy. That's no longer the case. So you actually are going to have some upside. I think you're going to have some upside surprise in earnings. So just imagine you got a sideline Fed, extraordinarily low interest rates, and an increase in earnings. Again, not the recipe for a tank. We are at uh, 3.53 on the average, national average 30-year fixed rate. Oh, there you go, right, the gloom com, guy again. Which is one basis point above the all-time low. John Tucker just left the studio. He's going to go refinance. No, I'm waiting for them to pay me to have a mortgage. <laughs> me too. That's pretty much coming. Uh, the question, Tony, is not so much what's possible, but what people believe about what's going on. How worried are you about psychology at this point? Well, the psychology is horrific. 
Right? You, I mean, it's almost like every time you turn on the TV, you get some kind of negative, sarcastic, you know, evil kind of act or statement. And that really weighs on how people move their money. But ultimately, Mike, it comes down to math. You need to make enough money to survive. And if you're not making enough money to survive, you've got to figure out a better way to do it. And ultimately, if you're a pension fund and you've got to make 7 to 7.5%, how are you going to do that with a 10-year, with most of the world in negative rates in the 10-year note yield at a 143? Can we go much lower? I think you could, you could go a little bit lower. I highly doubt it, but, you know, so I, I would have been wrong that we would have gotten this low. So um, I, well, I think you could go a little bit lower. But, again, I think that the recipe is we're going higher in rates and equities yeah. over the course of the next year. Remember uh, Stephen Major from HSBC came on the show and said we would get to 1.5? Yeah. Boy, was he wrong. Kit Juke's lowering <laughs> today to 1.25. It is the day before a long holiday weekend, so let's, let's do it in a fun way here. I'm going to uh, give you a... Uh, a new app called the the Fed Tinder app. Janet Yellen, do you swipe right? I think Janet Yellen is just going to sit where she is. She's been very clear and, you know, has not lied to date. And she basically said that Brexit brings a risk and we're going to reevaluate after. So I think they're data dependent, but I think that data is going to have a skew. So I don't think, I don't think they're going to raise rates. The markets certainly don't think they're going to raise rates until at the very end of this year. And, and again, what, what this did was it, the Brexit vote gives you a free pass. It's almost like weather, you know, where a company comes in and says, well, the, the weather affected our sales, so we had, we had weak sales. You, you can have Janet Yellen look at even if there's strong data coming in, she can say, well, it's strong, but we got to wait and see what happens with Brexit, so it buys her time. Yeah, but do, do you think that uh, what the Fed has done and where the Fed is contributes to the situation, is a problem with the situation, or doesn't really matter? I don't really think it matters until she she moves. Now, we have not gone into it. A, a lot of the, the bearish, my bearish friends would say that it's different this time. We could be like Japan. The yield curve's flat. Um, the, the Fed's pushing on a string. All the, all the things that actually I remember after the SNL crisis in the early 1990s, uh, early in my career. But the bottom line is until you have an inversion of the yield curve and the real Fed funds rate moves up, I don't think you're going into recession. So you have these kind of, you know, very slow quarters, and you have a re-ramp quarter. But ultimately, I think Janet Yellen has done the right thing. And just one of the things that I, I hear a lot about that the listeners will talk about a lot um, in the institutional meetings is what's the impact of the presidential election? It's so chaotic. And in my view, we already have the first female president, and her name is Janet Yellen. She's the one that's pulling the strings. And I think that's going to continue. Yeah, well, somebody said yesterday, Tom, that uh, concerns that nobody was in charge in Great Britain was, were, were not true because Mark Carney is running the country. Uh, Tony, let's frame out the market call right here. You work in S&P terms, 2100 on the S&P. You're looking for, what, a solid 10% move higher? Over the next 6 to 12 months, I'm looking to 15 to 20%. I mean, uh, currently my target for next year is, is 2340, um, which is, I think a little bit more than 10%. Um, I, and again, history is sell, saying that I'm probably conservative on that. And, and again, Tom, I think, I think to really frame this for the listeners that the, is the most important thing is the movement of corporate debt. 
Now, where I really screwed up at the end of last year is the equity market recovered, you know, from that August crash and, and real spike lower. The stock market recovered all the way, but the bond market didn't budge. It didn't improve at all from the stress. And, I, you know, I kicked myself for not seeing that more clearly. In this recovery from the February low, there has been an extraordinary, a historic improvement in corporate debt. And as we talked about in the last segment, that's the driver of capital spending, corporate repurchase programs, and mergers and acquisitions. And those are the drivers of the equity market today. Tony Dwyer, thank you so much. Can Accord Genuity with optimism there on stocks. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Michael McKee is at McConomy. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.